Well, good morning. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Well, as we open our Bibles to Matthew 5, I do want to give you a little bit of a, a sobering word about a missionary couple that we have, uh, we have supported for years and years who has had, they have had a ministry in Alaska through the Voice of Christ uh, radio ministry, and it's Bob and Dee Eldridge. Uh, Bob went home to be with the Lord uh, this past week, and it was all of a sudden. He died in a heavy, heavy machinery sort of accident that took place uh, probably while he was serving on mission. And, and he suddenly was uh, snatched from this world and from Dee, his faithful wife. Um, I had the privilege of meeting Bob and Dee earlier uh, last year. Last fall, he was in for some kidney surgery. I believe he had a kidney removed and uh, was in some pretty severe pain in the hospital, but was shining brightly for the Lord, and uh, his testimony made a definite impact on my life. It was uh, really special to be with Bob and Dee. Um, he told me his history of coming to Alaska, serving uh, in Nanana, and just uh, the sort of interesting and unique life that they've had together in radio ministry and promoting the gospel in that way, and all of the open opportunities they've had over the years a very gracious uh, couple and a very sad um, goodbye to, to Bob. And so we need to be in prayer for Dee as she uh, sort of grieves. Uh, I'm sure that it's very difficult for what she's going through. And we can definitely pray for her as we begin our time together. There are going to be a couple services uh, that you could be thinking about. A funeral service in Nanana, Alaska on the 18th. And that's at 4 p.m. And then also... Um, Thursday the 20th, there'll be a memorial service at Bethel Church on Farmer's Loop in Fairbanks. And so we need to be in prayer for them. So let's pray together now and pray for um, Dee and her family. Let's pray. Father, we just humbly come before your truth now. We know that, God, you anchor us in the word of God. We thank you for missionaries like uh, Bob Eldridge and Dee Eldridge. And we pray, God, that um, you would comfort Dee in her time of loss and comfort her family. And I pray that you would surround her now and her family now with the body of Christ and with believers. You've commanded us to weep with those who weep. And I pray that there would be people who could cry with her and also who could share with her the precious promises that you have in the Word of God about heaven and about the fact that Bob now is in heaven before his master. I thank you, Lord, that he lived a life that was exemplary and was given to your mission and that he stood before you and you said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And I thank you that he has entered into the joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. So God, we now just commit um, D into your care and we just pray for her. We pray that you would buoy her up. We thank you for your word now as we turn our attention to it. I pray, God, that you would send your Holy Spirit in a fresh way, where he would illumine our minds and our thinking, where the word of God would be impressed on our hearts, and God, where we would embrace our identities afresh, that you have made us your children, that we are your salt and your light in our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, but also, as I have studied Matthew 5 verses 13 through 16 out this week, I came 
upon the real fresh understanding that verses 13 through 16 are uniquely connected to our study that we've just gone through in the Beatitudes. Verses 13 13 through 16 are connected back with verses 2 through 12. And if you understand our passage in that setting, you understand that being salt and light is really bringing the beatitude attitudes public. It's living the Christian life in public in a way that shows yourself to be salt and life, salt and light in our world around us. Follow as I read verses 13 through 16. These are the words of Jesus Christ. He said, "You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As a teenager, I grew up in what was called the fastest growing church in Virginia. It's a large church in Virginia Beach, and it was uh, multi-thousand people that would come on Sunday morning, several services. And the pastor, who was a very dynamic leader and speaker, would say week in, week out, he would say over and over again sort of this mantra, which was our mission statement, which was, our mission is to go out into the world, into our neighborhoods, and reach men and women and boys and girls with the gospel of Christ. I thought, you know, that's a pretty good mission statement. And it was ingrained in my thinking as I heard it week after week after week to go out and sort of create opportunities where we could converse in the gospel and we could share the gospel with people and we could try to draw people into our fellowship with the gospel message. It was good. It was, it was a good statement. I went on several evangelistic campaigns, even before I was a Christian, and shared my faith, which wasn't real yet. But as a kid, I, I shared the gospel with people and had some success even sharing Christ with people, since, even though I wasn't a believer yet. Well, I became a believer at 17 and began to get a little bit puzzled because I was, I was looking in the New Testament for this sort of mission statement where we're supposed to find ways to segue into conversations about the gospel with other people. And I, I found some places scattered throughout the New Testament where, where, you know, we are supposed to share Christ and we are supposed to share the gospel message. And I believe in doing that. I found the ministry of Jesus where he would preach to the masses, to crowds that would come to him. He would preach in open air settings. And Paul did it and Peter did it as well. You know, missionaries are sent and they share the gospel of Christ. I I found how Jesus and Paul would would go into synagogues and, and they would connect the Old Testament with Jesus Christ. Jesus would connect it to himself and Paul would gather up the Old Testament story and connect it to Jesus Christ and the gospel. And I said, well, that, you know, those are good um, ways to understand giving the gospel. But there's so much in the New Testament that I found that talked about living the gospel life and how if you live the gospel life, your conduct is actually a foundational message for sharing Christ. In other words, if you live the gospel light, the gospel life, then you are light and you are salt to the world. 
And I think that what we have here in verses 13 through 16 is Jesus's evangelistic strategy, which is simply this, and it's the title of my message. It's taking the Beatitudes public. Taking the Beatitudes public. Taking these Beatitude attitudes public. I'm all about sharing Christ with people. I love to get into conversations with people I've never met before and share the gospel message and talk about how Jesus has changed my life and sharing the word of God to see a life transformed. But the emphasis here this morning, and I think a great emphasis throughout the New Testament, is that if you live the gospel, it is such a powerful message in and of itself. And it often opens up opportunities to share the message of Christ. And by contrast, if you don't live the gospel message, if you don't live out these beatitudes, you know what happens? It undercuts the very message you're trying to convey. So often we underestimate the power of the life that we live, both positively and negatively, right? And Jesus is saying, look, you are salt and you are light. You've heard the cliches that, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much You care, right? You've heard it. You need to walk the walk before you talk the talk. This is very convicting to me. I talk a lot. (laughs) I talk, ask my wife. I talk a lot. I do. It's it's what I do on Sunday mornings. I'm, I'm talking now. But really what's most important is my personal walk. If I live the life, it undergirds everything that I'm saying. And if I don't, it destroys it. And it's the same thing in your life as well. Christians underestimate the power of a Christ-centered life. I think that's very true. You probably underestimate the life that you're living in front of people at your workplace or the life that you're living in front of your kids. You probably underestimate its power. But Jesus is saying, no, you're salt and you are light. A lot of times people have looked at the Beatitudes, by the way, verses 2 through 12, and these Beatitudes have caused people to say, I can't really live these attitudes out in public. And they freak people out so much that they go hide in monasteries, right? And and get in cells and basically try to live them out as monks. A A lot of monasteries were born out of the teachings of the Beatitudes. But instead, Jesus is saying, no, no. You are supposed to live these Beatitude attitudes out in the culture. You are. Now, if you're taking notes... This is how I've kind of captured the outline. Taking the Beatitudes public has two effects on the culture. Two effects on the culture. Jesus here is using domestic metaphors. He's using common household pictures to make his point. Probably was thinking about how his mother Mary used to use salt on the food when the food would be served. Or how she would light a lamp, an oil lamp, to illuminate the house around them. These are common metaphors, common household items. A a lamp that's lit and salt that sort of, it helps the food out. And they're mundane. They're just household items. But what's mundane here is also extremely powerful. Let me just sort of build on that metaphor. Your life that you might think is very mundane If you're living it in the power of the Spirit and you're living out these beatitudes, you know what? What might seem mundane to you is very powerful. 
You might be used and being used right now to transform someone else's life. Salt. What is salt, by the way? I just kind of want to pick up on this picture real quick. Salt is an interesting uh, sort of ubiquitous seasoning element, right? Ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's like underdog. Underdog, it's underdog. He's everywhere. He's everywhere, right? I mean, salt is everywhere. It was on my fries when I ate McDonald's yesterday, right? And the salt was overtaking my fries, I noticed. It's a a very distinguished um, taste, I used to taste a lot of salt when I would surf. I used to surf, and when I would wipe out on big storm surf, I would go down into the soup, I'd be upside down, and I would be swimming up to the top, and I would be groping for air, and I would turn around, and another wave would hit me in my mouth, and I would be tasting salt. It's very noticeable, very very distinguishable in that way, in large quantities and in small quantities. In the same way, your Christian faith, if you live it out in genuineness, you know what? It's tasty, it's noticeable, it's distinguishable from the world. It's very potent. That's my sort of first point under what salt is. It's potent. Salt is something that's necessary for survival. It's all known living creatures are living and they need salt and it's regulating the water in their body. Salt is very potent, it's very necessary, and it's very noticeable. And I think that's why Jesus is picking up on this word picture. But it's also, and I think this is his main point, salt is used as a preservative. And in that culture, salt would have been seasoning fish to preserve it. And also, salt would have been rubbed into the meat to preserve it. Nobody had ever conceived of a refrigerator back then in the hot culture, or let alone an ice maker. But they would have salted the meat. They would have rubbed it in to preserve it. And Jesus is making that point here, saying to this crowd of people that was at his feet on the mountainside, listen, you are to be rubbed into your culture as Christians. You're you're preserving the culture. The culture might be filled with sin, but... I'm leaving you as salt and light into this world, and literally you're rubbed in to it. And beatitude living is being rubbed into the culture. So how do you mean? Well, you know what? Grace Christian School, for instance, is salty. It's rubbed into our culture. The the city around us knows about Grace Christian School. It knows what's taught. It knows that the gospel is held high. And it's an expression of a collection of churches that are a ministry of Anchorage Grace Church, and we are rubbed into the culture in this way. We're different. We're different than what's being taught in the public school system. Our church, Anchorage Grace, is rubbed into the culture. We are a city set on a hill. Why? Because we meet here in a worship center on Sunday morning? No. Because of what we stand for. Because of who God has made you to be. He says, you are salt. It's just who you are. As soon as you become a Christian, you're salt, whether you know it or not. And sometimes we're more salty than other times, but he has made you different. And the fact that you are distinguishable is a preserving, it's a preservation of our culture. Some of you are involved in social activism. You you vote in certain ways on principle 
and that's a salty testimony. <laughs> it's, uh, but probably more what Jesus is talking about is how you live in your daily life and culture. The conversations you have with people. The things you talk about. It's, it's containing sin. Say, so what does that look like? Well, I read an article. Uh, it was an article from NPR online. And I was actually rehearsing my sermon with Logan last night at the dinner table. And he said, you know, all this stuff about salt and sodium chloride and these articles, you get those off the Internet, don't you? So he knows I don't make this stuff up. Yeah, I, I said, yeah, I get it on the Internet anyway. But, but, you know, I get it for your pleasure. That's, that's why. And here's, here's one example of something I look at, you know, during my week. Um, for 11 years, the federal government has been burying nuclear waste in the ground. A half mile deep. And the area that was highlighted in this article is a New New Mexican salt bed. And it's a half mile into the ground where they are taking atomic waste and fuel from, from reactors and sending it down into these salt mines, these caverns that are, that are buried deep into the Earth's crust. 26 miles outside of Carlsbad, if you want to stay away from that area, <laughs> in the New Mexican desert. Uh, there are massive mine shafts a half mile deep, and they are, they are leading to caverns that are mined out in salt beds. Now, the waste is deposited there, and because it's so deep, the, the earth's crust, the walls are sort of moving things around and compressing things around this atomic waste, and it makes the salt move like a vicious plastic or cold molasses that closes up like it's closing over a healing wound. Kind of interesting. It's the power of salt. Now, I'm not promoting or propagating um, this sort of uh, behavior where we put toxic waste into the ground. But I am saying, look, salt is a very powerful thing, and it's not breaking down. It's not, it's not being sort of um, dispersed or messed up by the nuclear waste. It's containing it. It's something that is strong. And I think in the same way, we are doing this within our culture. Our culture gets toxic. But we as Christians are rubbed into it. We don't need to underestimate or undervalue the influence that Christ has made you to be. Paul said in Romans 1, and remember Paul, he had to basically let go of his pedigree. He's the Pharisee of the Pharisee. He's this man who studied under Gamaliel, but who cares? He's just now kind of an ex-convict preacher. (laughs) He says, look, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. That's being salty. He said, I'm not ashamed of it. And then two verses later, he talks about the culture that's spiraling down into decay and, and immorality, where they're exchanging natural desires for unnatural desires and they're digressing in perversion. And he says, those people are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They're basically taking the truth, they, they know God, and they're, they're taking that truth and putting it in a box and shutting a lid on top of it and sitting on it. They're suppressing that. And Paul instead is saying, no, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. But do you realize the gospel, it changed your life, and the gospel as it's lived out through your life, that's the power of God coming to people. We don't need to deny that. We don't need to to live in some sort of facade or some sort of dream world where we're just sort of saying, well, we go to church, we live, we, we wake up and go to bed and it doesn't mean anything. You are salt and you are light. You know, every time you have a conversation with your neighbor, 
and you don't complain about your boss. You don't bag on him behind his back. You're not complaining about your aches and pains, but you're, but you're talking in faith. And, and you're talking in terms of being a Christian just because, just because God has changed your heart. Every time you just talk about normal things in life and Christ is kind of the subtext, that is a powerful witness. You might be changing someone's entire world as you are rubbed, your salt that's rubbed into that little culture. Every time you talk about a political issue and you're standing on principle, that's a witness. That's being salt in our culture. Every time you have an unsaved neighbor that comes in the house or maybe somebody's watching a ball game with you and, and something seedy comes on, a commercial, and you flip the channel or you put the mute button on or you just turn and engage the person in conversation deliberately, that's being salty. Don't underestimate that. That's very, very powerful for people to see and experience. I was with a landscaper one summer, and he was my boss, and I was working my way through college, and he was just talking about interacting with a neighbor, and it was somebody where he had had a relationship with him before but hadn't hung out with him in a long time. And he said, you know, I I walked out on the back deck, and my neighbor, he pulled out a rolled marijuana joint and said, hey, let's smoke this. (laughs) What impressed me was the way that this landscaping boss responded. And this guy was several years older than me. And he just said, listen, I just looked at the guy and said, hey, praise the Lord, man. I'm satisfied in Christ and I love the Lord. I don't want to do that. And he just smiled at him and just, just promoted Christ's glory in that moment. And the way that he did that impressed me. It wasn't that he was condemning that person. He was just being salt and light and saying, you know what? I'm going to change the environment entirely because I love Jesus. And that's what he did thought that was good. And that's what we should do. We should live out who God has made us to be. Another thing that salt does, it's a potent taste, it's a preservative. And one other way that I think salt is expressed here in this text and another one is salt creates thirst. You know, your life should create a thirst for God. It should. If you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, genuinely, Other people will respond to that. Now, some people will reject you for that. They won't care that you're poor in spirit or meek or or, uh, merciful or pure in heart. But you know what? Some people will see that and they'll get thirsty for God. This is how Jesus put it in Mark 9. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how how will you make it salty again? Now, watch what he says. He says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Have salt in yourselves. You know what he's saying? He's saying you need to be deliberate in your heart. And by the power of the Spirit, be salty. What does that look like? Well, I think Paul, he fills this in a little bit in Colossians 4. Paul was in prison and the pastor from Colossae came over, Epaphras, and he was talking to Paul and Paul was closing up the epistle in Colossians 4, 3 through 6. And Paul says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul's saying, look, I'm shut up in this prison right now, but Epaphras, go back to your church and pray for me that God will open the door for me to share the gospel. And he goes on to say that I can make it clear to outsiders I, I, so that I'll know how I ought to speak to people the word of God. Just Pray for me about that. And then he gives a different way for the church to evangelize in verse 5. 
right after he says, pray that I can go out and speak the gospel, he tells the church to live the gospel. He says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now watch how he says for them to evangelize. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You might say, look, that doesn't sound too hard. Well, isn't it? Are you always gracious to people? You know, you don't have to be mean to people to, to, to say that you're, you know, being gracious. To be gracious is very proactive. It's not being neutral towards people or busy. If you're just passing people by and, and not caring about them and not being gracious towards them, then you know what? You're not being salty. But if you're gracious towards people, you know what happens? It's salty. It, it creates thirst where people are, are, are saying, hmm, there's something different about that person. And they'll actually ask you questions about your faith. You know, I know that many of you probably would dread segueing into the gospel, actually transitioning into a theological, theological conversation. And even for you to give your testimony would be very scary for you to do. But you know what you can do and should do? Be gracious to people. Live the life. Live the Beatitudes in front of people. And as you do that, what will happen is people go, you know what? Something's different about that person, and I'm going to ask them why. And when they ask you why, that opens up a conversation in the midst of a relationship where you can share Christ with people. Woodrow Wilson, our 28th president, he encountered a guy one time who had a salty life. He wasn't directly sharing the gospel, but his life made a strong impression on him. And Woodrow Wilson wrote about this. He said he was sitting in a barber chair, probably in Chicago. And he said a powerful personality entered into the room. A man had come in quietly upon the same errand as myself. Woodrow Wilson was getting a haircut and this other guy was as well. And he said, every word the man uttered, though it was not in the least didactic, showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him. And before I got through with what was being done to me, his haircut, I was aware I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. D.L. Moody was in that chair. He said this, I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had made upon the barber shop. He's talking about the workers. He said, they talked in undertones. They did not know his name, but they knew something had elevated their thoughts. And I felt that I left that place as I should have left a place of worship. Now, it'd be easy for you to say, yeah, well, that's D.L. Moody. I mean, great man of God, and he was studied, and he had things to say. But you know what? D.L. Moody was just living the beatitude life. He was just being salty. He was caring about the person that was cutting his hair. If you do that, you'll have the same effect. You will. You're just a man or a woman who God has made salt. You are the salt of the earth. Don't underestimate the power of the message that you're living in front of people when you care about them, when you love them, when you put yourself out there, when you get vulnerable with people. That doesn't happen every day. It's, it's, it's like tasting salt. It's distinguishable. And it just is. It's bringing the Beatitudes public. 
Now, how does salt lose its taste? Uh, Look at the word here, verse 13. Jesus says, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Well, the idea would be that you would go from being a revolutionary, a, a society savior as salt of the earth, being rubbed into the culture, to a footpath. That's, that's what's being posed here by Jesus. And scientists, they'll say, look, salt cannot be broken down. It's a stable compound, so it really can't become unsalty. Other people would say, look, yeah, except when salt uh, gets intermingled with impurities, it loses its saltiness. Maybe that's what Jesus was talking about. Like around the Dead Sea, when the salt washes up on the shore and, and intermingled, gets intermingled with, with dirty elements, and, and it kind of becomes tasteless, and it's just um, white dust that you walk on around the Dead Sea. Road dust, as John Stott put it. Well, that would be a sobering thought. I mean, we don't want to disqualify our message and, and, and sort of make ourselves unsalty by being impure, but I don't think that's Jesus' main point. Jesus' main point is this. Jesus made you the salt of the earth. And if you don't live your Christian life, if you don't live these beatitudes out, that would be ridiculous. It's ridiculous for you not to be salty. That's what he's saying. You are salt, whether you like it or not, whether, whether you realize it or not. Jesus made you salt. You are salt. He transformed your life. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we live these Beatitudes out. And to not live these Beatitudes out is ridiculous. It's like you've you've moved from being a Christian preservative. You're you're impacting the culture. You're out there. You're you're, you're being used to, to stem the tide against evil. You're being used as a witness. And to deny that in your life is ridiculous. It's as ridiculous as being trampled under people's feet. That's what he's saying. To be road dust, to to be suppressing the gospel truth about who God has made you to be. He's made you this. This is your identity. And for you not to live this out would be ridiculous. We want to live it out. We want to be the salt of the earth because God has changed our hearts to want to do that. You say, well, what, what do I do if I don't feel very salty right now? What if I am desalted and I want to be resalted? You know, well, you can't work up saltiness in your life. Jesus is not saying for you to do that. What I would say is, if you're not living these beatitudes out, repent. Repent. You are the salt of the earth. Repent because of that. Repent because we do sin. We we don't live this life and we need to by the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, and just repent. Say, God, I want to turn away from my wicked attitude, and I want to be a person who gives, who's long-suffering, who's living out the fruit of the Spirit. And in that repentance, you'll find that you are the salt of the earth. You are having that effect. Well, the first effect is that you are preserving the culture. The second effect is that you are promoting the glory of God. Let's look again at Matthew 5, now in verse 14. You're promoting the glory of God. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let's stop there. 
Jesus is saying to this crowd at his feet on the mountainside that you're the light of the world. And it reflects almost word for word what he said of himself. Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. And you might turn over there. John 8 verse 12 is where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And in the same way at the sermon, he's saying, you're the light of the world. I think we can learn more about how we're light if we understand what Jesus was saying about him being light. In John 8, Jesus is showing up at the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of three ceremonial feasts that was observed in the Jewish calendar in Jerusalem. And this is a feast that was happening around the end of September, early October in the fall, where the whole city would be praying for rain for its crops. It's a very dry and dusty region, and you needed water to live. So they'd pray for it every year. And many people outside of Jerusalem would, would, cre- it would be part of a pilgrimage into Jerusalem to participate in this feat, and it w- feast. And it was a great giant campout experience because people would, would sit in booths or tabernacles or, or lean-tos, and they would all be camping outside as they prayed for rain. For God to provide once again. And they were symbolically remembering how the children of Israel have wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. You know the story. And the Lord provided for them. He he provided light for them to see at night. And he provided manna from heaven. He provided food for them. He provided water that came from a rock. Remember that? And so symbolically, they're sitting outside in these tents, remembering how the children of Israel sat in tents as they wandered through the wilderness, and they would pray for rain. And sort of the highlight of the feast was the lighting of a 75-foot-tall menorah candle, candelabra. And little Hebrew boys would climb ladders, and they would throw the fire into the, the tar pitch or whatever, and light up these massive luminaries that at night would splash all kinds of firelight over the tops of these tents. So it was a very powerful effect because there were no street lights. And they would sit out and they would pray for rain and worship the Lord, remembering how God had provided before. And they're saying, God, provide sustenance and life for us again. That was the point of the ceremony. At the end of the ceremony, there was a day called Octavia. It would be day eight. It was really a seven-day long ceremony, and the eighth day was cleanup. And Jesus came out amongst the people. Now, he had made a few appearances. You could read about that in John 7 and uh, John 8. But Jesus now is making the point about how he is the light of the world. And he stands in the treasury, or the court of women, right in front of this 75-foot-tall candelabra that would be smoldering. And he said, listen... You know, the, 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 the flame is kind of burned out at this point, but he's standing in front of it and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows after me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, I'm not just the light of Jerusalem. I'm not just some good teacher. I am the one who will answer your spiritual need. You think you need food? You think you need water? Jesus is saying, I am the answer to your eternal need, the need of your soul. I am the light of the world. Will you see who I am? Jesus is the point of all of the Old Testament. He was the pillar of fire at night that led the children through the wilderness. He's saying he was that. And he's the point of the ceremony. He is the light of the world. 
He's coming in contrast to everything that's dark. And he says, if you follow after me, you can be light as well. You can have the light of life. That's what you've done. You as a Christian recognize that Jesus stands as the light in contrast to our dark society and you wanted him more. And when you live your Christian life, when you take the Beatitudes public, you know what you're doing? You're being like Jesus and you're saying, listen, I'm, I'm a light in the world and I've got an answer for you. But you've got to live it out. And if you live it out, you're living it out like Jesus Christ did. You are what Paul said in Ephesians 5, you were darkness, you were darkness, but now, look at this, you are light. You, that's who God has made you to be. You are light. Philippians 2.15 says we're in a crooked and twisted generation. It says among whom you shine as lights in the world. You're like stars in the sky. Luminaries. Or maybe just put in a, more, a smaller context, you're like fireflies in a backyard. You stand out. You're noticeable. You're distinguishable because God has made you to be this way. You say... I don't really stand out. Well, you know what? I know that you, like me, are an imperfect, fractured vessel. And that your light shines brighter sometimes than other times. But your identity is salt and your identity is light. And we have the opportunity to shine brightly and light up a whole room around us by the power of the Spirit. I kind of want to relieve your guilt this morning. You know, I... I used to really struggle. Wow, you know, I I had this opportunity to witness and I wanted to say this and I didn't. But did you live the life? Did you live the Beatitudes? Did you serve? Did you ask the person how they're doing? Did you care for them? Because they might ask the question, why did that person care about me? And in doing so, you were salt and you were light. I was talking to somebody this week who um, is trying to minister to their family and And there's a moral issue, there's a morality issue in the family. And she wrote a letter to somebody in the family. And, and, you know, it, it was one of those situations where the person is saying, how much more should I say? You know, should I open up the conversation to all the family? I'm like, look, the family's already talking about the issue. Don't worry about that. I mean, if you if you take a stand in your home, you can guarantee that people are talking about the issue. I said, look, just be light be salt. Just live the life now. Just live the life of Christ in front of people. And if you do that, you will back up and you will buttress the message that you have spoken. It's very important to do it that way. And don't underestimate how bright you shine. You know, maybe you just don't try so hard in your gospel witness. Don't force conversations, but at the same time, don't neglect living the Christian life in front of people. Now, what is Jesus saying in Matthew 5? He, he's saying, look, you are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill and it can't be hidden. You are being bright whether you know it or not. Just like New York City in front of a dark sky, it's very, very bright. And then verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the same thing that he said about the salt. He's saying, look, for you to be the salt of the earth and then suddenly you're a footpath 
that people are trampling on, that's ridiculous. It's equally ridiculous to light a lamp for light in your home and then all of a sudden put a bucket over top of it. That's ridiculous. You know, uh, hide it under a bushel, right? No, that's the same verse. It's the same idea. You don't put something over a light that you've just lit to light the house. Now, you know, I'll flip my lights out of my house and sometimes my two-year-olds will pretend that we're in a, a disco sort of setting and flip the light switch on and off. That's very, very frustrating. You know what that is? That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's frustrating. Jesus is looking at this crowd and saying, you know what? You are salt and you are light. And for you not to live this out, that's ridiculous. You will. God has transformed your heart to be this way. You want to do this. And when we don't, we should say to ourselves, you know what? It's as ridiculous as us being a footpath or us putting a bucket over top the light that I just lit to light things up. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, what does it look like to be light in a society? That's verse 16. What does the light look like? In the same way, it says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know what the light is? Two words, good works, good works. Now, what I'm not saying here is that we are to be dutiful Christians and just do things in the name of um, God in front of people. Now, the word works here is um, not the word agathos, it's the word kalon. Actually, it's the word um, good. It's not agathos, but kalos. And kalos, instead of it being sort of just manual labor works, kalos reflects the idea that these kinds of works are beautiful works. They're beautiful works. What makes them beautiful? You know, what these, you know why these works are beautiful and they're sort of illuminating light and bright works in our culture? It's because they're works that are motivated by graciousness. They're works that are motivated by mercy. Every time you get a twinge in your conscience to do something for somebody, and you want to do it not out of duty or not out of just trying to be a good Christian, but, but you're doing it because you're caring for somebody and you're dripping with compassion, that's a beautiful work. And people see that beauty. They taste it. It's salty. It's uncommon. It's where you give and you didn't really need to. You weren't obligated to give. You creatively saw a way to meet a need in someone's life. And it's beautiful. And you're not doing it to promote yourself or or to promote that you're the light. But you're just naturally doing it because God has made you light. And you want to do these things. It's uncommon. And it's beautiful. And all of a sudden when you do these things, you know what happens? People are giving glory to God. People will wake up around you. You say, I didn't even do anything. I, I barely shared Christ with anybody. And, and, and this person in my life is all of a sudden a Christian and is giving glory to God. This person has woken up. That's what happens. And that's what Jesus is saying. You, it's that they may see your good, your beautiful works. And then all of a sudden they're giving glory to your father who is in heaven. I had an experience like this, and I'm sure you have as well, where you can't believe somebody got saved, and they might even connect it to you in your life, but God did it sort of in spite of you. I, uh, I used to teach swimming. This is kind of the illustrations of what I used to do during summers, <laughs> summer jobs. I'm using them all up in one sermon. Anyway, uh, I used to teach swimming during seminary um, and teach children how to swim. 
It was kind of a very interesting experience. I, I taught in this sort of posh um, Southern California neighborhood, and I used to teach more in a, you know, a group setting, and then we went and did it privately at these homes. And I showed up at this one home in this backyard that, you know, it was so posh and it was so uppity up. You know, there were giant um, sort of floppy-eared rabbits that were bouncing around the backyard, and that was their pets, right? You know, I, I thought you, you know, you'd shoot the rabbit in your backyard. But anyway, these rabbits were their pets, and, and, uh, and you know, they had the, the rocky-faced pools with the, the water dripping down from the hot tub, you know, into the pool sort of as a waterfall. And I'm in this in this pool, and I'm trying to teach this little girl how to swim, and to get out of it, you know, she was so spoiled that she would, like, puke. She'd make herself throw up to get out of it. I just say, hey, we're in chlorine. It's all good, and you just keep teaching. Now, I don't know what kind of witness that was, but there was another scenario where I was with a family that was uh, Buddhist, and I taught these kids how to swim, and they sort of bonded with me, and and, uh, they wanted me to teach them more stuff the next summer, and I think it was just more out of a, a relationship that I had kind of connected with these kids. And, uh, and this mom would, would kind of watch um, things happen. And she knew I was part of the master's seminary and worked at the college. Uh, but I never hardly shared Christ or shared a Bible verse with her or with them. I just taught them how to swim. And um, I could barely teach my kids how to swim, but I taught these kids how to swim. I don't know how that works out. But all that to say... Uh, they liked me, and they knew I went on a missions trip to New Zealand with the college. And so they said one day, hey, why don't you come over after you get back from your missions trip and uh, give us the highlights of the trip. We'd love to have you over for dinner. So I met you know, the husband and wife, and, and the kids were there. And, and they began to drill me with Bible questions. All of a sudden, I was put on the hot seat, and I was in an ordination council meeting. You know, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, they're just firing all these questions, and I'm going, Wow. So I just shared the life of Joseph and what happened to him, how he was um, thrown into a pit and went through all kinds of horrible things. But Genesis 50, 20 says, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. And how he was restored to his brothers. And that seemed to satisfy the evening. And I thought, wow, okay, I made it out of that one. But the parents then cranked it up and said, hey, kids, go and watch a video, you know, up in the other room. And let me have a few moments with uh, Mr. Kratz. So we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, you see their expressions change, and all of a sudden, I'm in this sort of marriage counseling moment where the husband says, you know, I've been unfaithful to my spouse. And, you know, I'm 22 years old, way out of my league, sitting there as a single guy, and all I did was just sort of, you know, fumble through some some verses, probably, and just listen, primarily. And I left, and, uh, you know, kind of was blown away by the evening, and it was a powerful evening. But it was just God doing what he's doing in spite of me. Because a year later, I found this family. I saw them at an ice cream parlor one day and then later on at a swimming pool. And they were Christians. They were believers. And they were going to a Bible-believing church. And, you know, this, this dad, was he'd call me, Pastor. Hey, Pastor, how you doing? I wasn't a pastor yet. And it was just that the Lord had saved them. And he did it in spite of me. It's just all I did was teach swimming, you know, and... The Lord uses us in that way. You know, you could fill in the blank for what you do. Whatever you're doing, don't underestimate the power of the fact that you are salt rubbed into your culture and you are light. It's ridiculous not to be living this way. Let me try to apply this as we close. First of all, living the Beatitudes is living the gospel. 
these beatitudes that we have covered over the weeks are really just the fruit of the Spirit. It's living as Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. You never live your Christian life by your own power. Don't don't come out of this sermon saying, oh, I haven't been salty enough. How can I be more salty? No. Just just soften your heart before God's word and say, Lord, I want to live this out by your transforming work in my life. We can never drum up salt in our lives. We are salt. And God gives us the power. He, his spirit enables us to live our Christian life. Number two, be careful not to underestimate your influence on others. I've said that about 20 times. God designed you to be influential. He, he has given you your context, your culture, and your environment. He's designed your world to be influenced, and you should expect it. He designed you to be influential, and he designed your world to be influenced. You should plan for God's will to be playing out through your life. Number three, you don't have to be a bold personality to be a bold influence. Did you hear that? You don't have to be wired as a preacher or a spokesperson to have a radical influence on your culture. I was reminded, um, just thinking through this passage of something that a seminary professor told me. He talked about a guy who, who is just a no-name guy who started a little men's group in Maryland. And he was ministering to some young men and teaching them the word of God and discipling them. And just a no-name guy with an, a bunch of no-name men, right? And one of those men out of the group turned out to be Francis Schaeffer. You know, you just never know what you're doing when you do it. When you meet with people or you build a relationship with with somebody. God is working his plan out through us and we dare not underestimate it. We need to speak little and live large. Live large. Now, I'm not saying don't share your faith or don't share the gospel, but definitely don't force it and don't share your faith out of guilt. Live the life and and let the conversations kind of bloom and blossom around you and expect that your salty life is going to bring things up and that people will be saved. One person put it this way, talk is cheap, right? Don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. Now watch this. This is sort of a uh, $3 sentence here. Do spirit-motivated, spirit-empowered, mundane, yet beautiful works and watch people respond with faith. Mundane, yet beautiful works. This is Jesus' method to influence your culture and win people to Christ. You are salt and you are light. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for our time together. I pray, God, that your word would be impressed on our hearts now and that, God, we would not forget what we've just heard, but we would try our best by your gracious Holy Spirit to be humble so that you will use us in spite of ourselves to impact our world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. If we could stand up as we are bringing this to a close, I want to just give you a little bit of a highlight and preview of next week. Next week kind of launches us into a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. And this was really why I went to the Sermon on the Mount in the first place. It's Jesus and how he understands the Old Testament law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. It's verses 17 to 20. You can look at it as a preview for next week. And I am so intrigued by the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament is often a, ne- a neglected part of our Bibles, but it's, it's most of our Bibles. It's 39 books of the Bible. And Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that he's given us this scripture so that we can, we can live it out. It's inspired by God and it's profitable for our lives. And so the scripture Paul was talking about at that point when he wrote those words to Timothy is the Old Testament. And so I want us to learn how the Old Testament is profitable for us, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and how we can live the Old Testament by the power of the gospel in the Holy Spirit. So that, this kind of launches that series next week, beginning in verse 17. Also, a couple other things. Tonight is a business meeting. Um, for our church, and it'll be in the chapel at 6 p.m. We'll be voting to reaffirm our elders. I'll give some highlights um, to show, to talk about my first year and how happy we've been to come to Anchorage, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But uh, Dave Parker is primarily going to be officiating our time together. We'll talk through our budget and where we're going, where we're headed for this next season of ministry together. One last thing. We have some food for you. I say that, you know, just, uh, just to get your attention, right? Um, there's a guest reception in the chapel area immediately following um, this service. It, it was also during the, um, you know, following the first service during the interim time between services. The chapel area, we're opening that up with some food. It's got some cut fruit and some muffins. That's for new people who are coming, and it's also for the whole church, <laughs> And you say, well, how do I do that? Well, it's just a, it's a, it's a sort of a more private area where you can go and you can meet some of the leaders, some of the elders, some of the pastors of the church, and you can meet with each other. I'm trying to build community and relationships within our body. And so we have another area, another venue where you can meet and sort of have some body life with each other over there and where you can meet new people. So if you're new and you want to meet new people or if you want to connect with other people in the body, we're, we're right over there. And that's where I'll be. Um, after we close. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. I pray, God, that our church would be salt and light. Lord, we are a city on a hill. And God, we can't help it. You've made it to be that way. And Lord, we want to just live within the flow of your will and your wisdom by the power of the Spirit. So make us wise servants. Let us be deliberately compassionate to our culture around us so that they would see Jesus Christ in us. We thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.